Welcome to Stepping Through the Old Testament. My name is Nigel Carson and today is episode 11, Stepping Through Kings. First and Second Kings originally appeared as a single book in the Hebrew Bible, but were divided into two books when the Old Testament was translated into Greek during the 3rd century BC. The division into two books took place for very practical reasons. Hebrew words have only consonants, so the addition of vowels in the Greek language made the script twice as long. So rather than having one large book, they decided to have two smaller, more manageable books. In Hebrew, the book is called the Kingdoms of Israel and not Kings. And one of its purposes was to list and describe the kings of Israel and Judah in the light of their reign whether the king pleased God or disobeyed God. First Kings begins with the events leading to the coronation of Solomon as king of Israel, just before the death of David. Second Kings ends with the release of King Jehoiachin of Judah from prison in Babylon 37 years after the Babylonian captivity has begun. Therefore, the book of Kings spans the period from about 965 BC to about 550 BC, approximately 400 years. These 400 years saw a period of major upheaval in Israel's history. Commencing with the reign of Solomon, Israel was at the height of its political, military and economic power and is described as Israel's golden era. Under Solomon, Israel's borders extended to their greatest ever boundaries, south to Egypt and north into the middle of present-day Iraq. But shortly after the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin became known as Judah, with Jerusalem as their capital and was ruled throughout its history by the descendants of David. The ten remaining northern tribes now come to be known as Israel. So we now have two provinces, a southern one which is called Judah and a northern one which is called Israel. The northern province went through a succession of several family lines, each ruler terminated by assassination. The capital was located in several different cities until King Ahab's father, called Omri, made Samaria the capital in around 875 BC. Let's take a look at the events leading up to the division of the nation of Israel. Solomon was the tenth son of King David, and while his father had grown up in the countryside among the common people, Solomon grew up in the palace at Jerusalem among men of power and influence. He was well educated, never knew poverty, and was immune from the earlier infighting and jealousies among some of his older siblings. Before he grew to maturity, several of his half-brothers had already met violent deaths. Solomon was known as a man of peace, and his apparent sheltered upbringing in some ways meant that he had lost touch with people and the heart of the nation. 1 Kings chapter 1 records how David is forced to step aside and order Solomon's coronation as king due to a sudden coup by Adonijah, another one of David's sons. Later, after David's death, Adonijah continued to cover the throne of Solomon 
and Solomon is forced to order the death of his half-brother. On the world stage, Egypt's power had waned and it had lost its position of influence over the Middle East region. Solomon now reigned over all of Palestine, an area known as the crossroads of the Middle East. He had full control over all the trade routes passing through his territory, and 1 Kings 10.29 tells us that he imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150 shekels, and that he exported and sold them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Amorites. So Solomon controlled the sale of weapons and arms between the kings of the region and made a huge profit in his trading. He also owned a large navy, and 1 Kings 9.28 tells us that they sailed to Ophir and returned every three years laden with gold. In 2 Chronicles 9.13 and 14, we read Solomon received 666 talents of gold every year. This is equivalent to 25 tons. He also received revenue or import taxes from all the traders passing through his borders, dealing in various goods and the sale of spices. All in all, Solomon controlled all trade and financial markets in the region, and as the years passed, he became wealthier and wealthier. 2 Chronicles 9.20 tells us that the household articles in Solomon's palace were made of pure gold, and that silver was considered of little value in his day. Solomon also constructed an elaborate and profitable web of alliances with the surrounding nations and their rulers, and these international treaties were sealed by marrying a king's daughter or princess from that region. As a result, Solomon ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines, including the daughter of Pharaoh. Apparently, he allowed his wives to worship their native gods, and he even had altars to these gods constructed in Jerusalem. 1 Kings 11 tells us that in his old age, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and as a result, he was not fully devoted to the Lord as his father David had been. Solomon also set up an elaborate administrative organization throughout Israel. 1 Kings 4 verses 1 to 19 give us the name of his chief officials and the 12 district governors who supplied the massive amounts of provision for his royal household each month of the year. Solomon divided the country into 12 administrative districts, but these districts didn't correspond to the existing tribal boundaries. The final verses of 1 Kings chapter 4 speaks about Solomon's great wisdom and his insight, knowledge and understanding of plant and animal life. He wrote 3,000 proverbs and composed 1,500 songs, and people and kings from all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. During his reign, Solomon engaged in a massive building program. He spent seven years building the Temple of God, and 13 years to build his own palace. He also built a magnificent palace for Pharaoh's daughter. 1 Kings chapter 5 verse 13, we read that Solomon conscripted 30,000 laborers from all over Israel. This was forced labor, and each man was required to fulfill a regular shift 
of working away from home every third month in the year. It was this act of conscription and forced labour which would become the contentious issue that contributed towards the division of Israel after Solomon's death. So let's look at how the kingdom became divided. 1 Kings chapter 12 records the division of the kingdom and after Solomon's death his son Rehoboam became king of all Israel. But the people were weary of the heavy burden of forced labour put on them by Solomon to fulfil his intensive building programmes. A father or son had to fulfil a rota of spending one month away from home as part of the king's building programme. They would return home for two months before having to leave again and the strain of running a farm, a vineyard or planting and harvesting crops became a burden and difficult act for many families to juggle. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had fled Israel under Solomon's reign, now returned home from Egypt and the Israelites sent him as their spokesman to Rehoboam. His petition to Rehoboam was simple and his words are recorded in 1 Kings 12 verse 4. They say this, Your father Solomon put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labour and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Rehoboam asked him to return in three days and he would give him his answer. But instead of lightening the heavy tax and labour burden which Solomon's extravagances had forced on the people, Rehoboam decided to increase it and claimed that while Solomon's foremen scourged the workmen with whips, his foremen would scourge them with scorpions. Disgruntled, the ten northern tribes chose Jeroboam as their leader and seeded from the union. 1 Kings 12 verse 15 states that this turn of events was from the Lord. Jeroboam now returns home to Shechem in northern Israel where he fortifies the town as it is the head of his kingdom. But Jeroboam has a problem. The Israelites would regularly return to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. In order to keep his people from travelling to worship in the capital Jerusalem where they might be influenced to return to King Rehoboam, Jeroboam decided to institute the alternative worship of the golden calf. 1 Kings 12 verses 26 to 29 records how he set one up in Bethel in the south of his territory and another one up in Dan in the north of Israel. He also ordained priests and instituted a new feast for the Israelites. This action is specifically referred to as a sin and 1 Kings chapter 13 records the story of a prophet sent by God from Judah to Bethel where he cried against the altar and prophesied God's judgment against this pagan worship. When Jeroboam sought to seize the prophet, God paralyzed his hand and struck the altar so that it suddenly split and fell apart as a sign that the prophet's words were being fulfilled. Throughout the remainder of the books of Kings, we have an intertwining account of the reigns of the kings who ruled in the southern province of Judah and the kings who ruled the ten tribes in the northern province of Israel. In fact, it often becomes a challenge to keep track of which king is which and the province they're reigning over. 
Although the book is about the kings of Israel, it's not even-handed in its allocation of space to each king. For example, in 1 Kings 16:21, Omri, the sixth king in the Northern Territory, whom we know from other historical sources had an outstanding reign, creating an extraordinary economic turnaround for the nation. Yet the Book of Kings dismisses him in eight verses, because he was deficient in the one area that mattered. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Similarly, in 2 Kings 14.23, Jeroboam II had a mini golden age in the north, yet he is given just seven verses for the same reason, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. On the other hand, in 2 Kings chapter 16, Hezekiah, who was largely a good king, is given three chapters. Now, the stories of Elijah and Elisha, who were not kings at all, take up a third of the two books of Kings. This apparently uneven treatment occurs because the writer is not driven by a conventional historical approach. The writer of Kings is not interested in focusing on political, economic or military history, though we may mention these in passing. Rather, he is concerned with two aspects of each king's rule or kingdom, that is, firstly, its spiritual qualities, whether it was good or evil, and secondly, its moral qualities, whether it promoted justice and morality. Succession of kings in the north proved to go rarely smoothly. There were assassinations, coups and takeovers. The kings were often self-elected. For 80 years after the split, there was war between the north and the south amid increasing animosity, culminating with the tribes in the north making a treaty with Syria and Damascus to try to wipe out the two tribes in the south. The 80 years of war between the north and the south were then followed by 80 years of peace, during which God sent two prophets who play a huge part in the Book of Kings. Elijah's ministry is recorded in 1 Kings 17 through to the first two chapters of 2 Kings. The prophet Elisha who followed him is a key figure in the early part of 2 Kings. During this period, one particular king, their wife, and a powerful prophet stand out. Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. These three individuals are the more memorable characters in all the history of Israel the first two for their total wickedness, and the latter for his fiery zeal and courageous efforts in the service of God. 1 Kings 17 tells of the feeding of Elijah by the ravens and his boarding at the house of the, the widow of Zerapah during the three and a half years of drought in the land. 1 Kings 18 informs us that Jezebel's wickedness prompted her to support Baal worship and the cult of heathen prophets, while at the same time she strove to exterminate the prophets of God. Also contained in chapter 18 is the magnificent story of Elijah's duel with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 19 records the anger of Jezebel at Elijah's having slain her prophets and her threat upon his life. Elijah is reduced to desperation and in fear he runs for his life. In 1 Kings 19 verses 11 and 12, at a cave on Mount Horeb, 
Elijah is comforted by the still small voice of God, which revives him and informs him of the next assignments that God has lined up for him to complete. 1 Kings 20-22 relate other incidents concerning King Ahab, including his brutal treatment of Naboth and his death at the hands of the Syrians. The ministry of Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings chapters 4-9 was characterised by a considerable number of miracles, including the resurrection from the dead of the son of the Shunammite woman, the healing of Naaman's leprosy, and a floating axe head. Chapter 8 records the strange phenomenon of a prophet's anointing the head of a foreign king in order to punish the prophet's own people. Despite the intervention of Elijah and Elisha and the revival that took place under their ministry, the decline in the northern province of Israel continued and God's judgment drew near. 2 Kings 17 and verse 5 says, The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. In 721 BC, the Assyrians attacked and defeated the northern tribes of Israel. The people were destroyed deported from their land and replaced by people from other conquered nations. They became the ten lost tribes, never to return to the land as a nation. After the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel, Second Kings now focuses exclusively on Judah and Benjamin in the south. It was a very small kingdom, with Jerusalem as its capital and a small amount of land surrounding it. But their kings were descended from the royal line of David and they knew God's promise to David that there would always be one of his descendants on the throne. When the northern tribes were deported, God sent prophetic warnings from the prophets Isaiah and Micah that the same fate would happen to Judah if they failed to wholeheartedly follow God. Unfortunately, this had little or no effect and approximately 100 years later, Judah would find herself at the mercy of King Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded Palestine. In 612 BC, the Assyrian Empire suffered a stunning defeat to the Babylonians, who captured its capital city of Nineveh. Second Kings chapters 24 and 25 now tell of the fall of Jerusalem. By 605 BC, Babylon dominated Judah, had taken some captives away, and in 586, Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took additional prisoners into captivity. Many people who were considered valuable to the invaders, such as the prophet Daniel, and members of the royal family were taken to Babylon early on. By the end of Kings, the people of God no longer inhabited their promised land. Many areas of the country had been rendered virtually uninhabitable due to the raising, burning and other destructive tactics of the Babylonian army. While the people had been enslaved, scattered 
and decimated by their enemies. For the next 70 years, Israel was to remain in exile in Babylon. And there they wrote Psalm 137. The first four verses read, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The book of Kings begins with the blessed golden era of Israel when the blessings of God made Israel the most prosperous nation in the Middle East and saw them ruling over their surrounding neighbours. By the end of Kings, however, the nation as a whole has backslidden and are removed from their land, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. But God is a God of hope. During his ministry to Judah, the prophet Isaiah had already spoken of God bringing back the captives in Isaiah chapters 40 through to 66. The prophet Jeremiah also prophesied in his book in chapter 25 that the captivity of Israel would only last for 70 years. Thank you for listening. In our next episode, we'll be stepping through the book of Chronicles. God bless.